a Highline podcast. This is Ravel, a roundtable show about the complexity of faith in the age of information. My name's Josh. I'm Stephen. And I'm Emily. We each grew up in different parts of American Christianity, and we still keep thinking about how to take it seriously, even as we leave some beliefs behind. We think theology should be an exploratory dialogue, so our hope is that this podcast will encourage growth, both for individuals and communities. We don't have all the answers, but we're here to sort out as much as we can over a drink or two. Join us as we ravel out our faith in a complex world, pulling on one thread at a time, seeking meaning at the end of it all. Thanks for listening. Well, welcome, my friends. Howdy. Hello. Uh, what are you guys drinking this week? I made myself a drink. What did, What are you drinking? Okay, well, I guess we'll just start with me since I volunteered. I brought home a vanilla cream soda from work, and then mm. I put some rum in it when I got home, and the idea just came to me, and it tastes pretty good. I did add a little bit of cinnamon. Uh, shout out to Haley, longtime listener. She suggested I make this drink, basically. Yeah, Haley, I probably already told you, but it's pretty good. Get some coconut and some pineapple juice. You got a pina colada right there. Yeah, but, really. I mean, well, yeah. with the vanilla major... and the cinnamon, it would not, I would not recommend mixing yeah. all that together, but... It's pretty good. It's like a little rum chata e. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, but not that's mm-hmm. probably better. I just Very heard nice. rum, and I was like, I know a pina colada is made with rum, so I'll just name drop for a sec. <laughs> that's funny. Steven just heard the word rum and just got really happy. <laughs> yeah. I The only reason I know about drinking anything is my friend Steven Torna on the whiskey bench. Uh, the yes. drinks he makes. Anyway. I am throwing it back. I am feeling really nostalgic today. I'm feeling very relaxed. And uh, the very first beer that my dad ever let me drink as a as a wee teenager was <laughs> Fat Tire Amber Ale. So I am drinking oh. a Fat Tire by New Belgium. And yes. it is everything I wanted it to Good be. Good old Fat Tire. Launching me back into so many memories. Yeah. I love New Belgium. Thank oh. you, Colorado. What a Wonderful. gift. I'm drinking um, a nice hot cup of British blend tea. My doctor gave me the thumbs up that I can kind of reintroduce caffeine a little bit. I'm allowed 200 milligrams a day. Whoa. Um, And I've been really good about not having caffeine. And today it's kind of dreary outside. It's rainy. And I'm in a sweater dress that fits over my big belly. And I said, oh, tea just sounds really good. So that's what I'm having. That sounds delicious. Does tea feel a lot more satisfying now that Lent is over? I don't think you've drank tea on the pod since Lent. No, I haven't. And it is very satisfying. It's probably one of the hardest things I had ever given up other than gum. I gave up bubble gum one year. That was really difficult. It. I know that sounds like I am a completely weak person, uh, but gum is my weakness. So for me to give up gum was hard. And so giving up tea was really hard because I love drinking tea. So now that Lent is over and I can start having a little bit more caffeine as I go through my pregnancy, I am definitely enjoying tea. I appreciate it Well, welcome it back deeply. to Caffeination Nation. Woo-hoo! Yes. We don't have any patrons to shout out this week, but we do have an announcement. We talked about it last episode, but we have a new patron goal of 20 people supporting us, at which point we will launch some sort of Bible study. So if you'd like to be a part of that and or you'd like to support us, find us on Patreon. Um, it is my week to lead our discussion. And I was like looking at my notes about like different questions I've written down. And I have a lot of questions that mostly center around sin. Mm, I've been thinking about that okay. lately. The big S word. <laughs> the big S word. What are your guys' thoughts on sin? Maybe we should just start there. Like what, how do you make sense of sin as a concept anymore because i've gone through some changes over the years i think and i'm part of me like doesn't quite know how to make sense of it even still Mm -hmm. i I don't want to be the first one to talk because i'm a pastor and i (laughs) i feel like it's a cop out for me to like (laughs) but i really absolutely not but i but i really want to think on it because i i'm in a similar situation as you are, Josh, where over time, my understanding of sin has changed and is still changing. So I'm trying to place and put into words how I feel in this moment, what I 
view sin to be. And that's mm. difficult. Mm. Yeah. Well, maybe I should start like where I've kind of made sense of it over the last couple of years. I don't exactly know where it started, but at some point I started to make sense of sin as things that God doesn't want us to do, but only because they hurt people mm. and or hurt ourselves. And I don't remember if like someone gave that definition to me or if I just kind of like made it up on my own, but that's how, like how I've made sense of it for a long time. And in my, in some of the questions that I have written down most recently, I phrased it as, do social relationships help us make sense of sin? And my initial thought is yes. But then the more I think about it, the more I'm like, ah, maybe this isn't the best definition. And I'm not sure. Like, I think mm. that a lot of Christians talk about sin as if we all have the same understanding of sin, but I'm not convinced that we do mm, in general. Right. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. The Orthodox would say that sin, they, they kind of rest on the definition of like, missing the mark, you know, that archery mm-hmm. term of missing, like maybe what is best for us. I like this conception, Josh. I like, uh, I've been kind of thinking the same way for a while is, you know, like even the, let's take the Levitical laws as an example. Like even those, they can appear very, um, restrictive and like oppressive in some ways. And I think some of them were still are still like extremely misguided. But like, for instance, in that day, like when they were getting that law, however they got it, eating shellfish was actually pretty dangerous because they didn't have the same knowledge of germ theory. They didn't know how to correctly prepare such foods. And in, in that sense, I do view those laws, some of them at least, as God handing the law down or some enlightened person like Moses just realizing like if we just make it a rule like don't eat shellfish because you'll probably get very sick and possibly die it's not good for us to eat this right now i think a lot of kosher laws come out of the same thing is like a pig is unclean and unsanitary and maybe just based on a misguided view of like they live in a lot of mud (laughs) and muck but at the same time again like pork is a, a tricky meat to prepare sometimes and if if you don't have the same methods of preparing your food like we do in the year of our Lord 2021, like it might appear prudent to make a full on law and define it as sin to eat pig products. So do you think that therefore our definition of sin from like a Judeo-Christian perspective is always social? Like, is there always a social element to it? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'm immediately getting into thoughts of concepts of like communal sin like a group can commit mm-hmm. sin oh yeah yeah but i also think there is a value of for like an individual to pay attention to their own heart and pay attention to where they might be straying off and missing the mark in their own like individual experience yeah is that was that what you mean when you ask yeah i think so i guess like i think the reason that i came to have this loosely held definition of it is that if it's not causing harm of some sort to oneself or to other people, then how could we justify it as morally wrong? Like if there's no active harm being caused. Well, and maybe maybe the issue then is active because something can have an effect in the long run, but mm. it may not be immediate. You know, so I think about climate justice. Some of the things that we've been doing to our planet immediately some things don't necessarily have an immediate product, but in the long term and later on down the road, we are seeing the product unfold and it is harmful to the planet. So I would say there are some things that are immediate, but there are some things that are not. So I don't mm. think it's always activity that determines if it's sinful. So what's the mm. difference then between, or is there any, is there any difference between what Christians would call sin versus morality. I, I kind of conceptualize it as like, if we're, if we're going to decide define what is moral, it's easiest to define what is immoral. Sure. If it's not a, then it's probably B. And if it's not sinful, then it's probably moral. I didn't, like even Paul talks about that in his letters where he's like, I, I didn't even know what, what it meant to covet, anything until the law told me what it was like to covet something 
And now when I experience that in myself, the law tells me that's sin. But if I'm not experiencing that, then I might be, you know, I might be walking in the way of Christ, as Paul would put it. So it's almost like maybe sin just helps define morality as light helps define darkness or the other way around. Mm. Well, so the study of sin, hamartiology. Basic- Wait, say that word again? Whoa. Ha- what? Hamar- I've never ha- heard this word. Hamartiology. Hamartiology. Yeah. Okay. It's spelled H-A-M-A-R-T-I-O-L-O-G-Y. Okay. It basically describes sin as an offense or an act against God. And that I think that allows okay. interpretation to where if it's, you know, how we treat others is it an act towards others is it violating something that's sacred or divine is it violating sacred law it's basically something that's just in opposition of god is what i would view that as so mm-hmm. i don't know if that helps us so is is that kind of where some people because of that broad definition like people defining it as an offense toward god is that where we where some christians get the idea that all sin is somehow equal I I think for some, yeah. Interesting. And that brings up another question. Is it really equal? Like who like how do we how do we handle that? How do we Well, I've never understood that view because the Bible itself doesn't even seem to make that argument anywhere. And in fact, I think several places it makes the argument that there is a like a grain or a, a spectrum of morality. Mm-hmm. Like Stephen, you brought up Mosaic Law already. Like several things have much bigger punishments than others do. Yeah. True. What do you think, though, of of Jesus taking some of those teachings and kind of flipping them on their heads, saying like, yeah, it's good not to murder, like thou shall not murder. But did you know that harboring anger in your heart toward a brother is equal in my eyes? Or it's wrong to rape another woman in the tribe, mm-hmm. but did you know it's also equally bad to lust after her and desire her in a way that is outside of the way God has relationships in mind or something like that. I think with that, though, my interpretation of that would be Jesus isn't equating lust being the same as rape, but it's the fact that these are two various different ends of a spectrum that still oppose God's goodness in the world. Like it's it's still bad. Uh, Could it be that he's he's saying, like, if you harbor anger long enough, you might actually act on it and you might end up committing murder or like if you lust for long enough and harbor that in your heart for long enough it might it kind of into could like he's addressing the heart problem or the i've never heard of a pedophile who just you know for a split second was lusting over a child like that's something that it's something that it does grow you know what i mean yeah it is something that you have to feed into and okay so that's your interpretation of Jesus saying, like, to anger is to murder. It's because it's it's pointing you in the direction of, like, the, yeah. the, the natural consequence of harboring anger is that you will eventually manifest that in the world through physical actions of violence. And, yeah, and at the end of the day, it's still something that's opposing God's goodness. And so even right. if you were to never act on it and murder someone the fact that you're still feeding into this anger and it is building inside of you to the point where you could murder yeah that's still a pretty big deal yeah well that's Ooh. kind of an interesting example for me because like kind of going back to my question about is all sin or does all sin sort of have a social element to it with the anger murder example for instance i think the like the way i read that is jesus is highlighting that there are like physical, tangible components, and then there are like mental, emotional components. And just because like uh, the component is internal and doesn't have an external symptom, that doesn't mean it's not causing harm. Like it is causing harm in the sense that if I harbor anger against someone, like not only is it probably affecting me, but it is affecting my perception of that person, which Mm -hmm. is like in some way or another going to affect them. I don't mm. see how there could not be a social element to it. I think it ha- it has to be present. Like sin can't be committed in a vacuum is what yeah. you're saying. Yeah, right? Or well, could no. it? I don't know. No, I don't I don't think so. 
No. But we can speak of having a relationship with ourselves. Like even even the way I was talking on Twitter earlier about how I quote unquote hear different voices like Christ, the coach and the critic. Like I have a relationship with myself. And in that case, like I, I think I've said it on Ravel before, but my kind of my functional definition that I fall onto is a thought or action that actively works to degrade the inherent dignity inside the image of God that we have, right? As mm. members of creation, mm-hmm. the first incarnation, or even as members of the human race who happen to match what we believe is the second incarnation of Christ in Jesus of Nazareth. So anything that actively works to uh, basically tell God, like, this person is not as dignified as you see him, or, like, I think that could flip into... God, I don't even see myself as dignified as mm. you see me. And I think it is I I think it is possible to commit sin basically, I don't know, against yourself cuz you, like you can miss the mark in the way you conduct your life that as as far as we can tell like doesn't have an impact on anyone but yourself. I would disagree. Okay. I would say because eventually, I think it would impact the people around you, even if you don't think it does. So like alcoholism. For some people who can really hide their addiction to alcohol and hmm. feel like they have it under control, that's not always the case. There, I think there are eventually ways that it does seep out unbeknownst to us. And people are aware of it. Or even, let's say, the person lived a long life. They were a closeted alcoholic. They die. And, you know, the report comes out that, oh, did you hear they died of, you know, liver or kidney failure due to alcohol? Oh, I never knew that they were an alcoholic. I think there are things that eventually over time does impact the world around us. Hmm. And it may not be an immediate thing. And it may not even appear in ways that we suspect i think it can take different shapes and forms and we're not going to be on the lookout for it because we don't necessarily think it's harming other people or we may not even see it as harmful to ourselves. right like maybe it's an unconscious bias about something okay but that that just brings me back to if sin just basically boils down to harm why even use the term like why can't we just say that's harmful like it is harmful to be angry constantly it's harmful to yourself and it's going to affect the world around you. Like, we need to work on this. Or why do we have to be so wrapped up in, is pedophilia sin? Like, does the Bible talk about pedophilia? Like, wh- why can't we just, like, bridge that whole conversation and just be like, well, it's harmful. So, like, we can't have that. Why do we get so wrapped up in the terminology? I think for some people, there's a comfort when I hear, at least not me specifically, like, but if I were to hear or someone in my church were to hear, Jesus died for my sins versus Jesus died for my harms. There's some there's some there's a weight that comes to the word sin. And I don't know if it's something intentional or something that has been forming throughout history that when we hear that word now, we immediately apply it to something. Whereas if I was just to say it's harmful, okay, well smoking's harmful, but is it a sin? Like that's a question. Well, Well, it's harmful. So, like, why not? Interesting question. It is. And even in a social way, smoking is harmful. Okay. So, but when you. Wait, wait, wait. What do you mean, Stephen? What are you saying? Well, okay. So, like, someone can choose to smoke two packs a day. They're obviously poisoning their own lungs and they're obviously causing harm to themselves, which, if I'm being consistent under my own definition of working to negate uh, the dignity or the, the health of another person in within the image of god like i think it might be sinful to smoke if you're doing that but also like there are there are social harms perpetuated by smoking um secondhand smoke is somehow like equally as effective at giving people cancer as firsthand smoking a cigarette is and Mm. you you can effectively like poison the world around you with how much you're smoking and based on what emily said even about alcoholism like I think there there would even be social harms, mm. you know, with somebody who's addicted to nicotine, whose family is not, and they're mm-hmm. constantly disgusted or put out or disappointed that 
their relative would continue to do that to themselves. Mm. So right. So that right there just shows. And I don't have the answer to this. I'm just bringing it up for discussion. That right there just shows the dilemma of we see something as harmful. And so if sin is something that's harmful, why do we not call out smoking as a sin? We just say it's harmful. What is it then that distinguishes something from being harmful to sinful? Hmm. We have an understanding of what sin is. That's a really And while good I point. agree with the definition, why is it some things are viewed as just being harmful, but we don't equate that to being sinful there's yeah. something going on i i do think you're right emily about like you brought up earlier that sin like the word sin carries this weight to it that harm does not and i do think a lot of people reserve it for like the more extreme harmful things hmm. and maybe that's why we don't apply it to things like smoking that like are mm. very obviously physically harmful and you could argue socially harmful and maybe like Mentally harmful for a lot of people, but it's on some level like tolerable or like treatable that it's not like the worst thing in the, well, I don't know. It's like more physically harmful than something like adultery, but we see that as socially harmful more mm -hmm. obviously. Mm -hmm. I don't know. That's it's, a good question. It's interesting too when you, if you're thinking of sin in social terms, you know, I, I grew up being taught that. Uh, it was no accident that the first four of the Ten Commandments were describing your relationship to God directly, and then the last six were describing your relationship to fellow human beings. So if we're talking in a social way about sin, what do we do with 40% of the major sins of the Ten Commandments are directly like against God, like honoring the Sabbath or not keeping idols? Hmm. Because I think we would all probably describe our relationship to God as social in some way, maybe even if it feels parasocial, if we're doing all the praying and we're not hearing from God or whatever. Oh, <gasps> you know, I didn't even think about that. That's interesting. That our is relationship really to God as parasocial. That's mm -hmm. interesting. Mm. But even then, oh, that's interesting. Even then, it falls under that category of like of social, which is probably where like the major study of hamartology comes in and defines offense or act against God as sin is because first and foremost, the 10 commandments teach us that sin is against God first and human second. But the byproduct, like it always funnels back up. Like me committing sure. a sin against my wife is ultimately a sin against God in a way, because I'm mm -hmm. not recognizing her value, her dignity, her agency and not doing my best to honor her as a fellow image bearer, but it's still against God, which Emily, when you gave us the definition, I don't, oh. I just don't find much meaning in that connection though. Like I get that that's like the classic definition or whatever, but the whole like sin against God thing, I don't really get that. And it also doesn't really carry that much weight to me. Even maybe it should, but it just sounds a little bit too vague. Why do you think it doesn't carry weight? Uh, to me, it carries more weight to think about it in terms of whether or not I'm harming myself, whether or not I'm aware of it, or whether I'm somehow harming other people, whether or not I'm aware of it, and that somehow like the, the heuristic of Christianity leads me to like see those things revealed and like cut them out when I see them. But like the, if something isn't actively or unconsciously causing harm to me or someone else, I don't get the like extra tag on of, well, it's causing harm to God somehow. Like that brings up like a whole nother conversation about whether or not my actions affect God. Oh, you know what I mean? Hmm. Interesting. I don't think they affect God in the way that they affect ourselves or others. I think it affects our relationship with God. Mm, okay, fair. In the sense of that how sounds... we interact, <laughs> how we don't interact. <laughs> that sounds um, like an answer a pastor would give. Yeah. It is. Yeah, <laughs> it is. Definitely. <laughs> okay. Well, since we're talking about our relationship to God, here's another question that I was thinking about. Are there some things that God tolerates, but aren't necessarily seen as sin? Hmm. My my gut answer was, how the hell am I supposed to know I'm not God? Uh, <laughs> sure. 
You've been falling well, back on that a lot lately. Yeah. <laughs> but that's a really good question, though. Well, I think I thought of it the other week because I was reading this book and the author brought up this point about how we're living in a Genesis 3 world and we need to stop acting like we live in a Genesis 1 world. Like the world we live in is Genesis 3 onward. And he like kind of brought it back to sin a little bit, but his point was kind of like, oh, we talked about it a little bit in our episode on the origin of spiritual truth, like whether or not God's ideal or God's design is like the thing we should shoot for. Mm-hmm. And the author argued, no, like we live in a broken world. Like we can't expect our lives to be like they were in the garden, which was an interesting point. So I think that that's where I got this question of like, are there some things that like aren't the way that God created them to be quote unquote in the garden or in the beginning or whatever, but God somehow tolerates them or accommodates them because they're not that big of a sin or like something like that. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I'm not really sure how to phrase it. Like, for instance, maybe it's not ideal that I order from Amazon, but I tolerate it, even though I can acknowledge that maybe there's better options out there, but I know that Amazon is just super convenient. You know what I mean? Like, are Mm -hmm. there things like that that God views for us? I'm not sure. That's a puzzler. That's a puzzler, my friend. And at what point is it down to the individual like there might be some mm. things that i think god tolerates but you may agree or disagree i think that's such an mm. i think there's a lot of discernment that comes with that and i don't mm. know if there is an answer okay you are kind of bringing up a good point there emily is i i think what do we make of sin being defined by some form of objective standard versus mere subjectivity or mere uh like discernment at an individual level is at what point do we get to say like a blanket the structure of nature and morality says that murder is wrong like at what point do we get that form of object objectivity when we're defining sin mm-hmm. well i feel like i've heard plenty of christians try to talk about sin as if it is an objective morality yeah mm-hmm. and that we're the ones with the keys to it but, but we all like Emily, because we have the Bible, well, but, is that what you're but like going back to the example of smoking, I feel like that's such an interesting one because not only have like Christians disagreed about that as like a modern issue and whether or not we should view it as sin or whether or not like we should tolerate it. Like, well, maybe not everybody should do it, but like totally, if you're gonna do it, like maybe not the end of the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or like alcoholism is also a great example. Like we just mentioned that, and like. I think a lot of Christians have like go back to like where Paul says, don't cause a brother to stumble or something like that. And they use that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. as cause to like not drink around people who maybe struggle with alcoholism or great something like case that. for but, the social dimension of sin right there, by the way. Yeah. 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 Well, and that's, that's a really good point, Josh, because like the United Methodist Church has even gone so far as using grape juice for communion. And actually, that's how grape juice came to be was two brothers yep. who were Methodist wanted to have an alternative to wine during communion to help those in the church who were struggling with alcohol or alcohol addiction. And so that's how grape juice came to be. Those brothers' last names were the Welches. If you yes, didn't thank get you. that. So, but yeah, I, I, what, like, how does the church handle situations? Like, because, oh, that's such a good question. <laughs> Because not every Christian would view smoking as a sin, though, either. Right. But like Baptists, for instance, are like infamous for like no smoking, no drinking, no dancing. Mm-hmm. But even though not all Baptists think that. <laughs> yeah. So what, how do we, what do we do? With I feel that? like yeah. those, those things in particular are really good examples to me of like, how do you deal with modern issues and what stance someone of faith is going to take on it when you follow a religion that is thousands of years old and literally those things were not there back then or not to the same extent Mm. like obviously people smoked back then of some like some kind but it's not nearly the same as it is today or the fact that we even take ancient historical issues like in scripture like tattoos cannot tell you how many people are against me having tattoos especially because i'm a pastor but we take we take moments like that and we say well it says in the bible you know that you can't have a tattoo 
we do this dance where we have modern situations that are not specifically found in scripture. And so we try to make sense of it and we, you know, we just call it a sin. And then we have moments in in history like tattoos that for some reason we're still quick to carry out and to say, well, that's sinful. It's bad for you, whatever the case may be. So what do we do with that? Because if that's the case, then I'm going to hell. But that's a that's a good example of one of those mosaic laws <laughs> that I think was probably given in a life giving frame saying like like they did not have the same concepts of germ theory again or like bacteria and like if you're going to inject things under your skin they probably were running into instances of people becoming violently ill and like losing limbs and possibly their life because they were putting stuff under their skin that got infected mm-hmm. and that's that's one of those where like the mosaic law was probably handed down in that manner in a life-giving way to say like avoid this because we don't know you just you a lot of people end up dying and we want to avoid that for sure but now like in light of modernism and sciences and medicines and all that like we know how to correctly and add like adequately sanitize tools to safely uh, adorn our bodies with decorations you know and in that uh, like in that case that kind of points to again that concept of like progressive revelation that pattern that scripture offers us that like things actually do change and that model comes from Jesus himself, you know. But there are people who make the argument that well, it doesn't say this in scripture so therefore it doesn't apply. And I feel like that can be an easy cop out in regards to sin as well. Well, the Bible doesn't explicitly mention this in any of the laws or in the stories or whatever, so therefore hmm. it's almost like a free pass. So why is it then we have this yeah. idea The same people, though. You know what I'm saying? Like, we have this idea of, oh, tattoos are sinful. And that was, you know, and Stephen, I completely agree with what you're saying. But there are still some people who hold on to the idea that, well, no, Scripture says. But we have other things in the world that Scripture does not specifically mention. And in fact, Scripture actually has some things that we now do not see as being like slavery. Right. I mean, I think the the same people would probably be. I mean, like you could point out to where they would be extrapolating certain biblical principles into the modern age when we tell people like Internet pornography is very harmful, like it creates a bad industry. It creates a lot of um, trafficking and it creates a lot of violence. But it's, it's also just like not good for your soul to consume Internet pornography. Right. And the same people would be willing to recognize where they extrapolate that principle out into we don't do internet porn, but the Bible doesn't explicitly say it like that. Uh, am I hearing you correctly? Like that's I'm, like if they get to make a move like that, but they're not willing to make a move like, you know, things have changed in tattoo technology, then it's just it's going to be hard to have a conversation with them anyway. That whole thing just brings me back to like Christianity as a heuristic, like mm-hmm. Jesus tries to distill the law and the prophets, as he calls it, as love God and love your neighbor and like everything is summed up in that. So Mm -hmm. like if you use Christianity as the rule of thumb to then like use discernment for like modern day things that we don't have biblical basis for, but the whole biblical basis thing does get me too. like I, Mm -hmm. someone pointed out to me a while back that there's a difference between the Bible being descriptive and the Bible being prescriptive. Mm. Oh yeah. Like a prescript, like something that you're supposed to do. Like Mm -hmm. just because the Bible explains something doesn't mean that it's saying it should be that way like right i think the most famous example that i've heard people use for this is uh garden of eden like the fall happens and god is speaking to adam and eve and he says something like like the man will toil the ground and the woman will like want to have headship over her husband but her husband will have authority over her or something like that right Mm -hmm. we'll also have horrible labor so Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And like the whole labor curse, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that's a really great example of the Bible. Just because the Bible is saying it's going to be a certain way doesn't mean it's saying it should be that way. Sure. Sometimes the Bible is just describing the way something is mm-hmm. and might continue to be. Or like the uh, 
Oh, what's another good example of this off the top of my head? Or actually, the tattoo example could be a good example of this because it was speaking directly to the Israelites. Like, if we're reading the Bible in context, it was to the Israelites at a certain place in time, and it was telling them, don't get tattoos. But just because the Bible tells a certain group of people to do or do not something, <laughs> or not or do not something, <laughs> whoops, <laughs> um, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's telling us 2,000 years later, who are not those people in that context, to also do or do not those things. Ah, dang it, I did it again. <laughs> and, but that distinction was really helpful for me, I think, the difference between prescription and description. Wow. That yeah. is, I really like that. Pastor approved. Pastor approved. Oh, thank you. Look at that. We're going to take a quick break to say a few thank yous. Then we'll be back to our conversation. Thank you to our generous patrons for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Y'all are such a huge encouragement to us. If you'd like to support future episodes of Ravel, visit patreon.com slash Ravelpod or by tapping the link in the show notes. Thank you to everyone who is giving five-star ratings and thoughtful reviews on Apple Podcasts and to everyone who contributes to our weekly discussions at RappelPod on Instagram and Twitter. And of course, much love to Louis Zong for the use of our theme music in full color. And thank you to the Highline Media Network for having us as one of their founding podcasts. Here's a quick preview of a recent episode from our sister show, The Whiskey Bench. Perhaps it did kind of create this opportunity to kind for like racism to metastasize and be like exported around the world in a different way. But it also gave birth to the institutions that allow people to get out from under that class system. It also though gave that had plagued mankind. It forever. gives birth to parallel institutions that help reinforce the class system that is getting expressed through race. And now back to our conversation. Okay, so Josh, I liked the move you just made where, you know, when Jesus provides us the pattern for, well, maybe I'm viewing it as a pattern. When Jesus gives us, you know, all of the law and the prophets can be summarized by love God and love your neighbor. I wonder if that provides us a pattern for, like if somebody asked the, um, the antithesis question, and instead of mm-hmm. saying, like, what, what are the laws uh, filtered down to, like, if somebody asked, what are the sins filtered down to? Mm, oh, oh, that's a good question. Like, are we able to just... I see what you're making, yeah. Are we able to just sum it up? Like, I'm, I'm viewing, an, like, an hourglass shape in my head, and if all the law and the prophets are on this side, and it all narrows down to love God and love your neighbor, and then on the other side of the hourglass is... Anything that's not loving God and loving your neighbor is now now can be condensed into that statement instead of having mm-hmm. to hyper define what every single sin is. Well, maybe that's why I landed in a place where I was like, well, I think anything that causes social harm is a sin because mm. of the love your neighbor thing. Yeah. And maybe that's also why the classic definition of sin has been also somehow offending God because it's not loving God. Mm-hmm. Right, right. That would make that would make sense. Okay, so here's a question that Dang. I can't wrap my head around. If you're ready for another question, go yeah. ahead. Shoot. If somehow sin is socially tied, like I think you could make the case for that, especially with Jesus talking about loving your neighbor as being the sum of the law and the prophets, and therefore the antithesis of that is missing the mark somehow. Did Jesus oh. never never like socially hurt someone? Oh, dang it, Josh. Come on. Come on. I know. Because, <laughs> like, yeah, he did not have great things to say about the Pharisees and Sadducees. No, thank you. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And definitely, woof. <laughs> Sorry, Stephen. Where are you leading us? Like, do you have a conclusion to this question? I don't know. I'm not leading dang us it. anywhere. These are the real questions I have. I don't know what to do with these. This is just an open-ended question. No agenda. Dang it. I was hoping this was like point two in a three point question. Nope. <laughs> nope. I might have been raised Baptist, but that doesn't mean I am no more anymore. Oh, man. That is okay. So this. Although I do love a good PowerPoint, I will admit. This brings oh, me. Amen. Yes, absolutely. Especially when they print you off the like the uh, the eight and a half the by 
Yeah. Like five and a half bulletin, right? And they yes. like they blank out like three words just to make sure you pay attention in church. <laughs> Dang it, Josh. Um Okay. So th- this has been rattling in my head for the for the last uh, 45 minutes is does Jesus also provide us a pattern though for sin? Does he kind of elevate it into the realm of the heart? I mean, I think Oh, like with the whole murder anger murder lust, anger adultery thing. Lust adultery, sure. right? Like if sin is going to come all the way down to like a heart issue and not just an action issue. Cause like it, the, the gospels are full of Jesus saying like, you can do all the right, you can act the right way and you still don't know me. Mm-hmm. And if everything is coming to mm. a heart question, then when he summarizes the law and the prophets and says, love God and love your neighbor. It's like, if you put anything before anything for your own self-interest or anything for your own like self-aggrandizement before God or your neighbor, which is a very like upside down way of thinking about things, at least in our Western world, I think we would probably all start by saying like we have our self-interests and then we try to provide values for, for our immediate circle and then out from there. But like if you're trying to put the values of another person above your own, gosh, do I even know where I'm going with this? Okay, here it is. When Paul says <laughs> everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial, mm. pairing that mm. with the idea of sin being a heart issue, I almost hear that now in the, li- in the light of our conversation today. I almost hear that in the act of smoking is not harmful, but the, the willingness to forfeit some of your own agency to an addiction to nicotine is the sin like you are putting nicotine before God in a way in your heart because you are letting it you are letting nicotine drive your actions and not letting God drive your actions and love for neighbor drive your actions because like that's probably the way I would argue myself out of no smoking isn't a sin even though earlier in the conversation I did say it is a sin because I smoke a pipe like once a month right and I think I find that a very. I'm, I'm writing that down. I find that to be a very <laughs> enjoyable, relaxing, and social event when I'm together with my brother or with my father. It's a thing we've bonded over, and I don't Sinner. feel like I'm committing sin <laughs> when I'm smoking that pipe. But I think you could probably. <laughs> no, but nobody ever feels like they commit sin. We love <laughs> sin. It feels good. <laughs> But like when I give over to the addiction and now I like am feeling the itch or like I have to smoke a pipe every day because I need the nicotine buzz in order to feel like my a version of my what I think is my new normal. Is that the moment it becomes sin? Because like mm. uh, the, the, the passage from Paul saying everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial is kind of a, a very big twist to this conversation about sin. Mm-hmm. Totally. Josh, I really like your question. In regards to Jesus, it just reminds me of uh, when I was in the Holy Land with my class and my professor in the middle of like old city Jerusalem, like turned to my friend Maddie and I and was just like, what do you think about Jesus and erections? Like just flat out (laughs) threw that out there. Um, And I remember one classmate in particular was like, well, Jesus would have never had an erection. Like that's just what unbelievable. He was a teenager, yo. But we're like, Jesus was a human. Like Jesus was a man. He was born a baby boy. He went through his phallic stage and his oral stage. Like he just like any other bouncing baby boy. And I think, for me, when we then apply the concept of sin, I'm not saying like I want gung ho Jesus to be like this super sinful person, but I think for us to see Jesus as an example of love and compassion and justice, that means I kind of want to see Jesus having faults. And maybe that means that Jesus did sin because then Jesus was able to learn from that and was able to turn over a new leaf and to really lead by example to say, yeah, I, I am living a human Whoa. life just like you and me, but I'm not perfect for, I just, I, as a teenager too, I just struggled with this idea of, oh, Jesus is an example of how to be, but you're telling me then that I have to be without blemish. 
that I have to be perfect. And I hated that. I especially hated that when I learned I was never going to fit that. And so for me to see Jesus as an example, I kind of long for a brief moment, even if very brief, to say that, yeah, Jesus sinned because that's how we learn. We we learn to not do that. We learn what things we need to do or ought to do rather than doing things that are bad or turn us away from God. And so I would think that, I yeah, maybe Jesus did sin and that's okay because that's how Jesus was unable to say, whoa, hey, this is, this is what's going on. Here's where all the law and the prophets fall onto these two, to love God and to love your neighbor. And he was able to say that because he saw the ways that we were not doing that. And I think uh. for him to participate in that as well shows how God is present in our life. And that's what I would want. If I want to live a sinless life, I want to know that Jesus struggled with sin too. Because otherwise, if I'm hearing some perfect blonde-haired, blue-eyed dude telling me not to sin, then wow. I don't want any part of that. Okay. I want well, to hear... Emily, of course you would hate the idea of that when you are the reprobate. Like, you wouldn't want that. Of course. I know, right? But that's like, I want to hear from the first-century Palestinian Jew who lived a human life and was fully divine and fully human. Okay, genuine question. Genuine question. Yeah. How do people who believe in original sin reconcile the idea of Jesus being fully human. Like, I don't understand how people would fit those together and make sense of it. Okay. Well, so I, I've prevent or presented on Ravel before, basically the conspiracy theory that because human semen was not involved, that like it was the female womb that carried Jesus, the Christ, and that made him human, but it was somehow the Holy spirit that like provided the sperm that makes him fully divine and that like sin is passed down through semen. Basically I've heard that that was like right. a legit teaching I had in youth group. Um, that still boggles my mind. It's pretty wild. Yeah. It's pretty. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but even still like if, if, if like sin is essential to humanity and Jesus is fully human, how is sin not somehow in Jesus? Like Emily, I feel like kind of what you were getting at is what Stephen was getting at in that, like there's a conscious moment when like we become aware of what we're doing and we're like, well, I can't do that anymore. Or like we realize mm -hmm. the harm that we're somehow causing. And then Hopefully. that's like a fork in the road. Right. Yeah. yeah. But like up until that point, there's often like it's unconscious or it's like a not realized harm. Mm. And like if Jesus didn't somehow experience that, how does that give any hope for us? And I feel like that's what you were getting Speaking at. Speaking of mm -hmm. forks in the road, though, is it not possible to learn the same lesson by either committing the sin or at least experiencing is, does the let is the lesson born out of experiencing the temptation for the sin mm. and not necessarily the follow through is the lesson learned by experiencing temptation and saying like, I actually see that that way leads death and I'm not going to go that way. And I'm going to reject the temptation. Cause like, I mean that, that is straight, what like Hebrews two eighteen? It's like he experienced mm, mm. our temptation so that he can empathize. I think I think the lesson might be in the temptation, less so the sinful. Okay, action. but what's the difference between coveting and temptation? Like, doesn't like I isn't think, that kind of what lust is too? Where you're like, oh, I'm tempted to commit adultery. Like, I'm tempted to like act on these actions. Mm -hmm. or, I think covetousness gets a bad rep hmm. because. I also heard a theory about the Ten Commandments on how, you know, the first four are about Jesus and then, or about God and your relationship to God. And then five through nine are relationships with human beings. And then 10 somehow almost completes the circle and like leads you back to one. Because if you're coveting anything, then you've put God over or like something over God and that leads you back to mm. one and then it leads you back down the circle or back down the cascade or something. I think covetousness. I would want to do some more study with that verse of Paul's basically saying like, I didn't understand what it was until the law told me to do it. I think covetousness is more than desire. And I think it's more than temptation. I think it's a, I think it's a mm. fixation. And I, if, if we're going to continue mm. to use the, the language around like it being a heart 
issue. Covetousness is when you give over to that desire and you're constantly ruminating about like when you get to smoke your next cigarette or next time you get to masturbate to porn or, you know, like when it becomes like Mm. an all consuming fixation. But the desire, like the desire for an orgasm is natural, but it becomes Mm -hmm. sinful when that, when you, when you covet it so much that you can like only think about the next time you're going to be able to log on to Pornhub or whatever. Steven, I think you bring up a really good point. Like, did Jesus, well, there's this like doctrine somehow, I don't know if it has an official name, that like Jesus was somehow tempted in every way. Yeah. Not just like in the temptation in the desert, but somehow in everything. So does that mean that Jesus had the desire for sin or immoral things or whatever and just didn't act on them or was he like somehow so superhuman that literally all the pleasures of this world had no effect on him and he had no desire for them at all. And that's what we should strive for. Mm. Like, I don't know what else it would be. I personally take the view that the desire was present, but the follow through on what might've been sinful desire uh, was not there. Mm -hmm. If that tracks. So does that mean Jesus wanted to diddle little kids and he just didn't follow through? Like if he was tempted in every way. Whoa. Do you think? Do you think that the the every? <laughs> I don't way, know. I'm just like trying to think. Do you about think this. the every way language could have been a scriptural writer just using hyperbole to say like, look, Jesus can relate to you because he experienced sure, sure a human life, and like I've also heard pastors mm. um, pretty convincingly say that like the temptations in the wilderness and in the desert were pretty all encompassing, like between. Satisfying the mm. body with bread or satisfying the the hunger for power. And I'm blanking on the third mm. one. But basically, like, they, these are the major headers. Saving himself. Yeah, these are the major headers for, mm. for what any human will experience. And that Jesus, in, in rejecting those temptations and then being ministered to by angels in the desert, was like, well done, you passed. You, you successfully navigated the temptations of of like what every human will experience though that experience will happen in different ways. Like the desire to satisfy your body by creating uh, or like morphing a rock to bread is a, like a basal like fleshy desire to satisfy hunger or, you know, that could then translate into lust or, you know, other, other depraved ways of satisfying your own desires for pleasure or being satiated. Yeah, I can buy that. Like mm-hmm. though the temptation somehow summing up like the broad types of desire that we have as humans. Right. Well, okay, but why would Jesus being tempted to create bread be sin or harm or like Jesus ate bread tons of times? Is it just cuz he was fasting that it's somehow like sinful or tempting or I think well, that Yeah, it'd be in- it'd be instant gratification. Yeah, I think I mm. I've heard it taught that way is it's about instant gratification and it's about using an undue amount of power to satisfy something seemingly so small or like if you have the power to create bread and you don't that says something about your um your giving up even your own self-preservation instincts like which is probably why Jesus talked a lot about like you find your life when you're willing to give it up and when you're willing mm-hmm. to die and when you do die and like even huh. even Jesus saying in the garden, it's it's almost like, you know, it, you can make this rock into bread is almost even the small version because then we get into the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus is like, I do have the power to call legions of angels to fix this problem for myself, but I still won't. Yeah. Like it's, it, I, yeah, it's something to do with undue power. I still find a comfort in just knowing that Jesus was and probably maybe had some temptations or something. And I think, Stephen, you're right in the sense of the lesson could be learned, even if Jesus didn't full, like follow through on it. But mm-hmm. even just the idea that I would like to think that if I screamed, I hate you at a parent and slammed my door, uh, I would I would hope that Jesus at one point had done that too as a crazy, rebellious teenager. And that mm. there are some things that... Like, that's harmful to say I hate you or whatever mm. to a loved one. But we learn from that. And I, I I, just think that there's a comfort in seeing Jesus as a man 
who lived among us maybe didn't follow through on temptation and maybe was tempted less or more than the average human, whatever the case may be. But to even know that that was a reality that he experienced and was still able to say, this is how we should live. That is comforting to me. Yeah. Well, um, so there is something to be said about a third party observation of another person's sin. And like, I can watch someone addicted to meth just like tank their entire life. And in a way, I'm learning a lesson from their sin and from their temptation and their addiction. Like, I don't have to ever smoke meth to know that that would be extremely harmful to myself and to my family. So, like, mm-hmm. I think that's another way in which Jesus could have been just so present and so mindful and so uh, in tune with the spirit, to use some Christianese, like, just so present to the moment and seeing people like, either live in secret sin or, you know, they're, they're a product of some form of public sin or something like that. Mm-hmm. Like he, he can still learn the lesson having not smoked meth, you know? Yeah. Jesus smoking meth. There's an, there's a visual for you. Oof. <laughs> okay. This is, this is a late time to bring this up. Um, but something that's bothering <laughs> me very lately about sin is the way I have made the conscious decision to pray the Lord's prayer and say, forgive us our transgressions as we forgive those who have transgressed against us or trespasses. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Because the way I grew up hearing it was forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And I always found that uncomfortable because I don't like the idea of sin being some form of like accounting or like mm-hmm. a ledger, like collateral. Yeah. But I've been recently diving into the roots of the Greek in this model prayer that the Lord gives us. And you're making me so proud. The Greek is actually financial. And that makes me incredibly uncomfortable. Mm. Should it make me uncomfortable or do I just need to get over it? Someone brought up to me today, actually a shout out to Haley again. Uh, She reminded me of the, uh, like one of the sub arguments for Christian universalism, which hinges on uh, like if Adam's sin somehow affected all humans, but Jesus's death did not atone for all humans. Does that mean Adam's sin was more powerful than Jesus's death? Mm-hmm. Um, which is an interesting discussion. Yep. Yeah. I don't know where else to go with that, but you reminded me of that with the like whole deadedness thing as it applies to like atonement. Yeah. We didn't even talk about atonement, man. Or like the other thing I just thought of too, which is like a whole nother can of worms again at the end, of course, is like the whole thing about, whether or not Jesus experienced like sexual desire and sexual temptation, like either he didn't at all. And he was like completely asexual, like literally not wanting or desiring sex in any way, which would like completely fly in the face of evangelical purity culture that tries to prescript marriage as like the final, like the most best thing you could ever do, even though Jesus never did it. And Paul never did So either it. Jesus didn't experience any, oh yeah, and Paul too, or Jesus was sexually tempted and saw some beautiful bodies and was like, ooh, I kind of want those on my body. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> like, I don't know. It's just like, it's like a whole nother discussion about like whether or not sex can or is, should be sinful. I don't know. But then it brings me back to, are there some things that we are predicated towards that God somehow tolerates, but it's somehow just not sin. Like kind of going back to Paul's, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I don't know. I don't think I'm any closer to any answers. I appreciate the discussion, but I don't think I'm anywhere closer to figuring it out. (laughs) I think both could honestly be equally valid answers. Like, I don't think any of the three of us would say that a modern human being who identifies as asexual is any less human because they don't feel sexual desire. Oh, no, I don't think that either. I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't mean for it to come off like that. Well, uh, like I, I knew you didn't, but to recognize the fact that like asexuality is an aspect of the human experience that like, thankfully we're talking about at this point in our lives, you know, but at the same time, like, I don't know, it still goes back for me. Like there's a, there's a conversation between like, feeling very natural sexual desire and then fixating on it to a point 
where it becomes lust or it becomes adultery. Right. Well, and I think that that's my point too, is like either Jesus was asexual, which would like completely contradict the whole like purity culture stances, in my opinion, or like Jesus experienced sexual lust and desire Mm. towards people. And if he did, I'd still be careful to delineate between lust and desire. Sexual desire is different really? than sexual lust. Oh, in interesting. Mind. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, okay, that, that's, that is the work I've done to deconstruct uh, my own purity culture teachings. And, like, to recognize, mm. uh, for me, being a straight guy, like, to recognize that a woman has a rockin' bod is not necessarily <laughs> sinful. Like, if any, it, sure. like, it, it provides mo- more, I don't know, it just becomes the fixation of purity culture. Like, bounce your eyes. Like, never ever look at another look at another person's chest (laughs) or like (laughs) okay like that's just gonna happen so like what do we do when it does and if and if lust is literally like recognizing that a human being has breasts then we're all i love this this is great uh emily help me out (laughs) steven and i just like went off the deep end and like opened way too many cans of worms for the end of an episode yeah no take Uh, me back to the debt question i want to hear emily address the lord's prayer debt language financial language uh so i shouldn't assume but which version of the lord's prayer are you reading because in the greek version of luke's it's using both a financial and a non-financial stance on sin Oh, interesting. Okay, so, I've been reading Matthew. Okay, so Luke's version, it's, you know, forgive us our our trespassers, our transgressions. The Greek word that's used for that is hamartia, which is <gasps> where the study of sin comes from. That's the Greek word that for sin. That makes so much more sense. For guilt. Yeah. And then it's guilt. paired with indebtors. And I think... And I may not entirely agree with it, and I may even be completely wrong. But I think what's happening is in this prayer, Jesus is trying to tell us that when we sin, when we transgress, when we are guilty of said action, we are creating a situation where we become in debt to that person or that person becomes indebted to us. Because if you read in the prayer, you know, forgive us our transgressions as. We've forgiven those who have transgressed and lead us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We're recognizing how God is a part of that. And in a sense, we're indebted to God for the salvation and the life of grace and forgiveness that we have. Again, I don't entirely agree with that. Mm. I just think Mm -hmm. looking at the language, that's what my understanding comes to. But it doesn't have to mean financial that's just the word that they have at the time because that's the word that made sense interesting so it's almost a blend in the greek for Mm -hmm. luke it's like forgive us our guilt as we forgive the those those who who are in debt to us but the and the debt Mm -hmm. is created in some form of that still feels like scorekeeping to me in some way like (laughs) <laughs> one Stephen, zero Emily. It, it could be our modern understanding. You know what I'm, Like, it could be our modern understanding of the financial world, of sure. debt and collateral and oh, things of that nature. totally but, true. Because as far as I understand, the, uh, the first century Roman world was, debt was more, like, when we talk of debt in America, we're talking, like, 30-year mortgages and, like, 20 mm-hmm. year debt repayment student, student loans. loans. Yeah. But as far as I understand the Roman world, like debts were spoken of on a daily basis if they were spoken of at all. Yeah. In the same way, like we talk about a yearly salary, but they were, they thought in terms of days wages. Right. Maybe debt is the same way. And maybe the debt is like, oh, my corn purse is a little low. Like, I know you did this work for me. I'll just owe you tomorrow and pay you tomorrow's wages plus today's, like if we're in debt. Like maybe the time horizon is a lot shorter. And right. definitely then it would be my bias in the way I have lived financial debt. That would right. be like coloring my my skepticism around using financial terms for atonement or for the forgiveness of sins. Very interesting. Very interesting. So so yeah, read the read the Luke version and there you go. Okay. I will look into it. That's my assignment is dig into Luke in Greek. 
I love it. Josh, thank you so much for starting this conversation. This one has been very, oh, very yeah. intriguing. Yeah. Loved it. Really Thanks for joining it. me. <laughs> I, uh, I have lots of thoughts and questions around this, clearly. And uh, thanks for helping me explore that a little bit. I don't think I'm closer to uh, an endpoint with it, mm. but I, I appreciate you coming along. Yeah, fair enough. Let's see. Right before we close here, then, I will just make one more pitch for the... Bible study concept we are putting out there as a stretch goal for our Patreon. Once we hit 20 Patreon subscribers, we will be opening up a corner of our Discord server with a like a voice feature. Like if you've ever wanted to make Ravel or like join a conversation with the three of us, the Bible study would be the place to do that. Like when I pitched the idea to Josh and Emily, like I've been feeling a desire to get into the Bible on more of a person, personal, relational, almost like devotional. On a personal, per- relational yeah. level. I'm sorry. I'm not making fun of you. I'm sorry. More of a devotional way of reading scripture instead of so hyper intellectual or just trying to parse the the words and find the theology. Like regardless of your view of the book, how how can we allow this book to inform the way we actually practice our Christian faith. A note to existing patrons, if you are in our Discord today, please hop into the new text channel that will be up and let us know how you think this this could be structured. Like we we have a few ideas of how we might um incorporate like a bonus episode almost for Patreon subscribers. You know, we record maybe half of the Bible study and put that out as a bonus episode just in case you weren't able to be there live with us whenever we do it yeah we're just going to throw out ideas we want to make this a much more of a community than it already is which i mean come on Mm -hmm. the discord community has been fantastic so far the discussions we're already having are fantastic but having pointed discussions around the bible with our voices and not just with text is something that i've been feeling a lack in my life and i just have a desire to open that up to the ravel group so there you go join us well emily do you have a word for us to uh like leave this discussion and sin no more (laughs) (laughs) if you're sinning you're going to hell just kidding just kidding no however we view the idea of sin and whatever we are struggling with in regards to sin just know that we are doing this in community And we have a way to learn and to grow. And Jesus is an example for us to love and to grow and to know that there are things that will never separate us from God's love. All we can do is live our life the best that we can. And we can do that in fellowship. Welcome to the Whiskey Bench. Every episode, we pair a new and delicious cocktail with a roundtable discussion about philosophy, politics, or current events. Whether we're tackling the January 6th Capitol riots or Twitter's censorship faux pas, we aim to look past the simple answers and discuss the complexity of our world. Or we discuss the unanswerable philosophical questions like if mankind is fundamentally good or evil. And I discover I might be a communist. So follow the Whiskey Bench if you're into questions like these. Highline Media Network. Normal people in normal places.